Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today I'm handing over the JOSPT Insights reins to some of the world's leading clinician researchers in the field of hip morphology and hip pain. At JOSPT, we're really proud to work with the Yahir Collaborative to advance research and clinical practice for young people with hip pain. Over the coming months, you're going to hear more about what's new in the research and understanding of hip pain, including how it develops and how to best treat it, all geared towards helping you best help the patients and athletes you work with. Dr. Joshua Heary, sports physiotherapist and research fellow at La Trobe University in Melbourne, has the hosting duties today. Over to you, Josh. My name is Joshua Heary, and I'm thrilled to host this collaboration between JOSPT and the Young Athletes HIP Research Collaborative. We are aiming to bring you podcasts that improve your knowledge about managing hip pain in young, active people. Joining me today to discuss hip dysplasia is Professor Inga Mecklenburg and Dr. Julie Jacobson. Both Inga and Julie have extensive clinical and research experience in people living with hip dysplasia. Welcome to the podcast, Inga and Julie. It's um, really great to have you, and and I'm really excited to hear a lot about hip dysplasia. Thank you very much. So we might start out with just talking about what is hip dysplasia. So maybe, Julie, can you give us in the audience uh, an understanding of what developmental hip dysplasia actually is? Hip dysplasia is a common joint disease, and a bit more specific in hip dysplasia, the acetabulum does not completely cover the femoral head. And as a result of this, the acetabulum and femur does not fit 100%. And the lack of coverage could be both in the anterior, lateral, but also the posterior direction, but most commonly in the anterior and lateral direction. As a result, we see increased pressure at the acetabular rim and also why this probably, why we probably also see a higher prevalence of labral lesions in this population. You mentioned a, a change in the shape of the hip. Inga, can you maybe expand on that and, and talk about the specific hip shape that we see and how it differs to maybe other conditions such as femoracetabular impingement syndrome, for example? In patients with hip dysplasia, there's global reduced acetabular coverage and, and compared to what you see in, in healthy participants. That's on the acetabular side. Also, we see on the femoral side that there might be deviations compared to, to what we see in, in uh, healthy participants. And the studies there are often performed on children, but here we see that there, in a proportion of patients with hip dysplasia, there's increased femoral interversion uh, when you compare these angles to reference values. And we will see it often in children, but also sometimes in, in the adults that they will walk with in-toeing gait. And, and that's probably because this position keeps the femoral head within the acetabulum when you have hip dysplasia. So I would say that in hip dysplasia, compared to persons without with a normal hip morphology, you see reduced acetabular coverage and you may, may also see changes on the femur. As we see in a number of other hip conditions, a lot of these radiological findings are common in people without pain. Is that the same with acetabular dysplasia or, or are those 
those that that hip shape is that hip shape more actually only seen in in people with symptoms it's it's quite normal to have these morphological changes of the hip joint and if we look at general populations we see in in Europe, but also in uh, South Korea, that about 5% of the population have these morphological findings if you look at x-ray, but without any pain. And in terms of the, the proportion of people that present, say, to a clinical practice with generalised hip and groin pain, uh, do we know anything about how common hip dysplasia is in the symptomatic patient? It depends a bit what kind of criteria you use. And I think maybe we, we should talk a bit about angles, <laughs> but there is one criteria called a sensor edge angle below 20 degrees. And if we use this criteria, then about 80% have hip dysplasia. This has been measured in a French population using a criteria where the sensor edge angle is below 25 degrees. Then the, the prevalence of hip dysplasia or the proportion is, is between 8 and 32% in American, also British populations. So it can be up to 32% in populations with pain. Wieber back in 1934 defined hip dysplasia on, a, an, on an X-ray uh, measured by the center edge angle. And in the center edge angle, uh, or when you measure that, you, you find the center of the femoral head, you place a vertical line through the center and then align to the anterior margin of the acetabulum. And that was what Julie mentioned. Wiebeer said a center edge angle below 20 degrees is definite hip dysplastic. Between 20 and 25 is borderline dysplasia and above 25 is a, a normal center edge angle. So, so that is how we measure it. So if you suspect hip dysplasia in a young adult. The first thing you will do, apart from talking to the patient, is to take an X-ray. And in Denmark, we would say it should be a standing X-ray of the pelvis. Of course, hip dysplasia is global deficiency of the femoral head. So, so we only measure the lateral coverage of the acetabulum by measuring the centrage angle, but that is how Weber defined hip dysplasia. Are there any, any other radiology measures or that can talk about the other types of dysplasia? So the, say, anterior or posterior undercoverage that clinicians can look for when they're looking at their x-ray? What we would normally do at our institution is we would also always measure the acetabular index angle and that measure how steep the acetabulum is. The higher the acetabular index angle is, the more steep the acetabulum is. And the normal range for the acetabular index angle is between uh, 0 and 10 degrees. Above that, then, it's a sign of hip dysplasia. Julie, what about clinically? What can we, or how do we diagnose hip dysplasia clinically? When a patient presents in an outpatient clinic, the the medical doctors or officials meeting the, this uh, patient would be have to listen to pain located to the groin and maybe also lateral hip regions. And then in, in our clinic, we also usually do uh, some kind of impingement test. So for an example, the FADIA test. And we know that it's a very sensitive test uh, and a lot of these patients have pain in the tests. But 
From the literature, we know that about 58% have a positive impingement test when, when you have hip dysplasia. But of course, the, the radiographic findings have to fit together with the story of the patients. So what usually works clinically is the radiographic measures put together with the clinical history of the patients with hip and groin pain, and then also some kind of intraarticular pain when prolocated, I would say. Right. And obviously, we'll, we'll talk about some of the common impairments that we see. What we might focus on now is, is the, the actual development of, of hip dysplasia. What do we know about the genetic and or, and or developmental components of hip dysplasia? If I start with the genetic components, we, we know a little about that. And, and our, at our department, we have performed studies in this area. So uh, we have a, a registry of the patients with hip dysplasia who we have operated with the periacetabular osteotomy, the surgical treatment of hip dysplasia. So based on this PAO registry, we started out with a study where we showed that 30% of the patients operated with the periacetabular osteotomy, they have relatives with hip dysplasia. And among these 30%, more than 70% reports having first-degree relatives with hip dysplasia. First-degree relatives, that will be parents or brothers and sisters. So that indicates a genetic component. And then we identified 28 families where one of the family members had hip dysplasia and were operated on and had at least two first-degree relatives with hip dysplasia. So we had these 28 families and they all agreed to giving a blood sample. And based on the blood samples, we performed genome sequencing. We saw that there were several genes responsible for hip dysplasia and that had already been reported in the literature. But our work also detected new candidate genes. And, and we concluded that this work supports a, a polygenetic disease model meaning that there are several genes involved in developing hip dysplasia. But there's also a developmental component in hip dysplasia, also reflected in the term developmental hip dysplasia. And this is maybe not so clear in the literature, but what has been shown is that breach presentation and being firstborn is associated with developing hip dysplasia. And that's probably explained by the position of the fetus that puts pressure on the hips. And then this is more anecdotically, but nevertheless, something we inform the patients about is that the practice with swaddling babies when, you, when they are infants and you put them to sleep is, is not good for, their, for the development of their hip. Uh, so, so we inform them that they should not swaddle the hips too tightly because that will put their hips in extension and adduction, and that should be avoided. So that is sort of reflecting that there also is a developmental component to developing hip dysplasia. And so asking our patients about these things, about relatives that have had hip dysplasia, and some of the things you mentioned about being firstborn, is that an important thing that we should be including in our subjective assessment if we suspect that our patient has may have hip dysplasia? I'm not certain about if we should ask the patients about it, but the patients will often ask us because 
they will often be young women when they are treated either with exercise or, or surgical. And then they are concerned about, is this a disease that I will give on or bring on to my children? And we also see that some families, in some families, they know about it because there'll be several family members who have had surgery. Now, I think it's more about their history of symptoms and how they present clinically, then taking this together with some radiological measures. Also because it could have quite a negative uh, result on the patient being afraid of getting a child or, and we don't know it, it's not that strong association. So I wouldn't put that into the mind of a young patient. And so just building on, on, on what you mentioned about symptom development, do we know anything around why some people may remain asymptomatic but have the, the acetabular bone shape, which is synonymous with dysplasia? And why some people actually develop symptoms? Is there any studies that show why that why some people go on and become symptomatic and others do not? When we look at the populations, we see very large variations within physical activity level, sport activity, and how tall, how small you are. I don't think we have like any clear indications. For some, there may have been a previous injury or some very high-performance sports, but we also see the opposite. So there's really no clear sign here. I agree. We, we don't have those kind of studies. And clinically, we really don't know who will develop symptoms and who will not. We know from studies, there, there was a large study in Denmark, the Österbro study, and they measured x-rays on a lot of participants. And there you could see uh, hip dysplasia radiological within a lot of participants. And that's also what Julie were talking about, that if you just measure on x-rays, you'll find a lot of persons uh, with hip dysplasia, but having no symptoms. And we don't have the, the answers as to why they develop symptoms. We have hypotheses, but we, we don't have the studies where we follow these patients over a long period of time to see who will develop hip or symptoms and who will not. And when we compare our clinical populations with asymptomatic populations, they are quite similar in many aspects. So they, they have large variations like a normal population would have. And I think we should also be cautious putting too much emphasis on the radiological angles because when we measure angles at trying to define what is normal range of acetabular or femoral angles, we see that the span is, uh, is really large. What we also see with these angles is that we, we know that there is a high degree of measurement error so that we see variations of plus minus five degrees when we, when we measure an angle and when we do a clinical study investigating re the reproducibility. When we measure any angle, this angle could be even lower or higher, and, and the variation is plus minus five degrees. So, And when we use a, a criteria of 20 or 25 degrees as having dysplasia or not, then all the time we have to think about these large variations that exist when we measure this angle. The centrage angle is crucial for uh, giving the right diagnosis. So we have in Denmark had discussions about whether the x-ray of the pelvis should be standing or in supine. 
And now the three hospitals performing surgical treatment for hip dysplasia in Denmark have decided and agreed, okay, we use standing x-rays of the pelvis. And that is because studies have shown that the inclination of the pelvis varies whether you're standing or you are lying down. You will see more ret- retroverted acetabuli if you use supine x-rays. So that also adds to the insecurity about these angles. And I think that's a really important point to make because often when we see our patients clinically, they've had a variety of different imaging imaging investigations done. So wading through that information can be really complex and difficult and, and it's very hard for patients to understand. So I think some of that information you provide is, is going to help the clinicians who are listening to the podcast start to understand that the difficulties in, in determining the diagnosis. So let's move on to the clinical presentation. And I know, Julie, you touched on this earlier. Are you happy to expand on the clinical presentation of people with hip dysplasia, location, length of symptoms, their typical age, those sort of things that we need to know about when we're seeing these patients? The clinical presentation of hip dysplasia is, is normally longstanding activity-related pain. And in about 50%, it presents bilaterally and, and in some even more. Their pain is located to the groin, but also to the lateral hip region. Touching upon age, the age range between 25, 32 years, and um, many experience both intraarticular but also extraarticular pain, where their extraarticular pain are most commonly located to the iliosaurus and hip abductus. So some may present with extraarticular pain as their only pain, and others with both intraarticular and extraarticular pain. 50% also report moderate to severe back pain. We also also see both hip and groin pain, but also back pain in combination. And when I talk to patients with hip dysplasia, I very often hear a history where the patient is telling me, I feel that my hip is unstable. When I walk on uneven surfaces, I really have difficulties keeping my hip tight and on the right place. That's what they feel when they have to tell how they feel or experience having this joint. And I think that's very different from when you talk to a patient with famous table impingement syndrome, because they feel the opposite. They have a stable hip. They have too much coverage, where the patients with hip dysplasia have reduced coverage of the femoral head, meaning that they also feel a bit of this micro-instability in their hip. Why do you think they often have these coexisting conditions? I would say they compensate. So they, they lack stability. They lack bone and joint stability in their hip. And then, they have the, then we have extra structures providing stability of the hip. Probably also why we see a high proportion of extra pain located to the iliosaurus and hip abductus. These two places are the places where we lack coverage when patients have hip dysplasia. So it's, it's a, I think they compensate for the lack of bony stability, so using more muscles to provide stability. And probably also why we see a high proportion of back pain in many patients also. If we, um, we've done our assessment, we've, we've got a suspicion that uh, our patient has dysplasia. What are the, what are the physical impairments that, we are, that are often seen in, in, in patients that come or people that come with hip dysplasia in a clinical setting? 
I would say that there would often be strength impairments, reduced balance, but also some kind of gait adaptations. I've done some 3D analysis on patients with hip dysplasia where we found reduced hip extensor angle in walking and also reduced hip flexor moment in walking. So they protect their hip. They do not use the entire range when they walk. Probably also, therefore, we see reduced hip moment in walking also. We also have evidence to back this up. PhD student Michael O'Brien from the Latrobe University has performed an extensive uh, systematic review on physical impairments in patients with hip dysplasia. And, and there he saw that, as Julie said, a lot of them will have a positive impingement test when looking at their gait. We see that they walk re- with a reduced hip flexion and extension. And we also see that they have lower hip muscle strength compared to asymptomatic participants. So the literature actually backs up what, what Julie was explaining that she sees in, in at the department. And and if I can also just add that that's more for 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 what we were talking about previously, that's another systematic review that Mike O'Brien performed, where he tried to synthesize what does the the literature say about pain, physical functioning and, and quality of life in patients with hip dysplasia. Again, he performed a very comprehensive systematic literature search and included all the available studies. And so so here it's only uh, self-reported information that he included. And his systematic review clearly shows that patients with hip dysplasia have much worse pain, uh, self-reported function and quality of life compared with healthy participants. It was large, large differences between patients with hip dysplasia and, and uh, healthy participants. So there's no doubt that although these patients are young and relatively healthy, they have hip pain and that does affect their hip function and also affects their quality of life. That was the first part of a terrific explainer on hip dysplasia. Now that you've got good grounding in diagnosing and identifying the major impairments that come along with hip dysplasia, join us next episode as Julie and Inga dive into how to design an effective treatment approach based on the latest research evidence. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.